Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 129. We are trundling along late in 1837, and as you heard last week, Dingaan was dabbling in cross-border raids, or at least cross-Drakensberg raids, and had dealt Mzilikatsi a penultimate blow. Coming soon towards Indebele were the Boers, intent on delivering the coup de grace. Time to talk a bit about Daniel Lindley, the American missionary who'd been living at Mzilikatsi's main Imizi, Moseka, in the Klein Mariko Valley, and who'd left in a hurry along with the other missionaries after the Boer raiding party shut up the homestead. If anyone was qualified to attend both Amaindebele and Boer missions, it was Lindley. There's even a town named after him in the Free State, which, unlike so many others, has retained its name from its origin. Lindley had been brought up in the American West. Apparently, he was a dead accurate shot, as well as a fearless horseman, which made him quite a hit with the Boers of 1837. This was no soft little Englishman. Oh no, this was a man of the plains. But he was also ordained as a Presbyterian minister, and intellectually stringent. When Porthita and Maritz returned from the raid on Mzilikatsi in early 1837, they relied on Lindley's skills with animals and his hardy attitude, while they had very little time for the other two missionaries who appeared lost on the felt. Daniel Lindley was born in Pennsylvania, alongside a tiny stream called Ten Mile Creek, in August 1802. His father founded Ohio University, so it's no surprise that the lad was quite an academic. He was ordained by the Presbyterian Church in 1831. In November of 1834, he married Lucy Virginia Allen, and they were sent by the American Board of Missions to South Africa. It's not too well known these days that in those days the Americans were sending missionaries to save South Africans in the early 1800s. Lindley and his wife travelled by ox wagon to Maseka in 1835, a 1,600-kilometre journey, and only two years later they were forced to flee. Now, surrounded by Boers and not Amandabele, Lindley came to the conclusion that both sets of people needed saving. He referred to Pete Retief as a worthy man, but the Boers in general, he said, as a body, they are ignorant and wicked, without schools, without teachers, without ministers. What will become of them? He said in a somewhat uncharitable way. The other English-speaking missionaries were rejected by the Boers, but they showed signs of friendship towards Lindley, and later he was to become the official first minister of the Natal Volksrat, albeit the brief moment that the Republic existed. This was still four years hence. And as a personal note, I visited Ohio in May and June this year, spending a few weeks at Ohio University, which is in Athens, a town about the size of Grahamstown, but the university has 30,000 students, far bigger than Rhodes. I'll share some pictures of the trip on my site for those interested. The address is desmondlatham.blog. Ohio University has many links to Africa and South Africa. It first opened in 1808 with one building, three students and one professor by the name of Jacob Lindley, who was Daniel's father. In 1828, just before Daniel was ordained, Ohio University conferred a degree on John Newton Templeton, the first black graduate and only the third black man to graduate from college in the United States. And black graduates existed in Athens, the small town, because the state was part of the famous Underground Railroad, which was a network of secret routes and safe houses established in the U.S. during the early to mid-19th century that helped slaves escape. 
Lindley, therefore, was clearly steeped in the emancipation message before he left the leafy forests of Ohio for the dry South African felt, and here he administered to the needs of both black and white, Boer and Amandibeli, later the Amazulu. Back in southern Africa, by the 1830s, the political face of the region north of the Orange River and east of the Kalahari Desert was profoundly transformed. Farming communities in the early phase of these changes, say from 1760 onwards, were comprised of a few hundred chiefdoms, small fluid clans and tribes, if you like. But by the 1830s, there were three large centralized African kingdoms. The Amazulu in the east, the Abakwa Gaza, or the Gaza as they're better known, in the northeast, and the Amandebele in the west. We've heard an awful lot about the Amazulu in the Amandebele, but not a lot about the Abakwa Gaza. I'll get back to these folks in a later podcast. But wedged uncomfortably between these three large centralized kingdoms were several smaller groupings. The Bapedi, the Amaswazi, the Balokwa, the Basutu, the Mampondo. The rest of the clans and tribes had simply fragmented and vanished from the Haarfeld, some escaping to the edge of the Kalahari Desert or barely surviving in the malaria-infested and tsetse-fly-ridden eastern Lowfeld. Some managed to eke out a living on the plains of the southern Haarfeld and the broken country to the south of the Tugela River, trying to maintain autonomy on the margins of these three large kingdoms. Dingaan of the Amazulu, Shoshangani of the Abakwagaza and Mzilkazi of the Amandebele were powerful rulers. They dominated fairly large territories through violence and exacted tribute from defeated peoples. By contrast, the kingdoms of the Bapedi, the Basutu, Patlokwa, Amampondu were defensive. These smaller, less aggressive chiefdoms held together by facing outside threats. The chiefs who ruled these smaller defensive entities did so through clever diplomatic manoeuvring rather than through force. They also manipulated their people's access to land and cattle. The Swazi, however, occupied a position between the larger kingdoms and these smaller entities. Starting in the late 18th century as an expansive migrant chiefdom, the Ndwandwe, the Zulu, the Mtetwa and Egaza had forced the Swazi on the defensive into the mountains of Swaziland. But by the 1830s, the Swazi were emerging once more as a power player on the felt. Just to remind ourselves... The kingdoms, both centralized and less centralized, were characterized by three clear social divisions, and all were not equal. At the top was the aristocracy, consisting of the ruling family and a number of other families who were allowed into the rarefied atmosphere of elitism through ties of descent or political loyalty or a combination of the two. Below them was a stratum of commoners, families, who formed the heartland of the kingdom, the kind of middle class in a way, or at least the central body politic. At the bottom were the despised and generally poorer families, clients and dependents, who recognized the king as overlord, but were excluded from participating in the kingdom's political affairs. At this point, the homestead, while remaining the basic unit of social and economic organization, had also become far more stratified than the households in southern Africa only 100 years earlier. The difference in wealth between the aristocracy and the commoners was much more extreme in the 1830s than in the 1770s. Tributes had increased, the social tax if you prefer. Heavier demands were being made on these folks, coughing up cattle, grain, young women and the labour of young men. And yet, the kings did not push this too far. These homesteads had to function just well enough 
to produce a surplus of food and labor, and the kings had to be very careful in what they demanded of their subjects. In turn, the chiefs were expected to help and render assistance to the poorer homesteads in bad times. Failing to do so would have led eventually to power being usurped. People allow kings to rule only as long as kings rule for the people. If this system becomes onerous, people tend to rise up. Another fact which I've tried to point out is that the role of women was not entirely one of chattel, as with the tale of Mkabai of the Zulu, Shaka's auntie. She was an extremely powerful political figure, and her festering hatred of Shaka led directly to his assassination. Kings, who were trying to prevent male relatives from establishing themselves as rivals, sought to put senior women in positions where they could act as political counterweights. Examples are many. Mtumbazi, who, depending on which oral history account you prefer, was either the mother or the sister of Zwide of the Ndwandwe, or Mantatisi, mother of Sikunela of the Batlokwa. As this series continues, we'll hear of many other powerful women. So here were emerging African states who had threatened each other through their entire existence and faced additional threats from the South. European colonial domination was emerging rapidly in the Cape. In the North, the Portuguese continued to maintain their port at Delagoa Bay. The men of Lisbon were much weakened by now, but they were still there. The bay, yes, was a ramshackle port and continued to export ivory and animal skins, gold and even slaves. And to the south, Port Natal had become an important stopover for many ships. British traders were interested in this little bay with its excellent products collected by traders who were subject to Dingaan's rule. The traders did not like being ruled by the Zulu king and were making plans to change up the power base of what was to become Natal. By now, late 1837, missionaries were amongst the Basutu in the Caledon Valley and in the territory between the Fish and Imzimkulu rivers, even so far as inside the Zulu kingdom itself. Back in Cape Town and Grahamstown, the British officials were weighing up options for further north. Their maps were somewhat hazy when it came to exactly what lay across the Vaal and the Drakensberg. Into this Interesting landscape rolled the Boers, who left the accursed English behind, or so they hoped. Speaking of the English, a Swede-Dutch mixed man was now back in the Cape, running Grahamstown and frontier districts. Andre Stockenstrom had sailed back from his temporary exile in Sweden, and was now the Lieutenant Governor of the Eastern Cape. Lord Glenelg, the Colonial Secretary, was a Liberal and wanted Liberals to run the show in Southern Africa, and Stockenstrom, despite being a Boer, was also a Liberal. Stockenstrom was more in step with the thinking of the missionaries, not the settlers. This was to have repercussions for both the English administration and the 1820 English and the Boers. Ordinance 50 had been passed in 1828, which removed the Khoisan from the past laws, compulsory labor, and summary punishment that they'd suffered without trial. Ordinance 49 had been passed before this, which encouraged the Makosa labor to enter the Cape. The settlers had of course been outraged by these ordinances, even those who might have profited from the freeing of the Khoisan and the advantage of using Amatkosa labour. They were against the idea, these Eastern Cape frontier settlers. Reluctant for the Hottentots to enjoy their liberty, wrote James Reed, the missionary. The backlash had kick-started the Great Trek, and much more besides. The colonial office in London backed up Ordinance 50 and actually extended this Southern African law through the British Empire. 
Colour, as opposed to slave status, could not be used as legal grounds for discrimination, at least on paper. It was a concerted effort to reform the structure of slave-owning societies which resounded across the British Empire at this time, but as with all things, the devils in the details. For example, the Cape Protectors of the Slaves organization proved to be more willing to defend the interests of their masters. The slave uprising of 1825 in the Koa Bokefeld, north of Cape Town, led by a man just called Galant, had turned many previously in favor of emancipation against the idea. It's true that in Cape Town slavery was slowly disappearing by 1837, partly because of the ban on the slave trade and partly because slaves were sold by their owners to the booming wine farms around Stellenbosch. Freeing of slaves was a particularly urban thing to do as the owners became more aware of human rights, while in the countryside slave ownership persisted. The number of free slaves in Cape Town quadrupled in the first third of the 19th century. This created a large group of liberated Africans who hailed from places like West Africa, Madagascar, Mozambique, who established themselves around four mosques. Some of the slaves who arrived in the Cape were already Muslim, but these were primarily Sufi of origin, and there weren't more than a couple of thousand by the late 18th century. The great expansion of Islam in South Africa only began with the establishment of the first madrasa or Islamic school in 1793, and the first mosque only appeared in 1804. As slavery ended by the late 1830s, there were around 6,500 Muslims in the Cape, most living in Cape Town itself and under the tutelage of nine imams. Their mosques were concentrated west of Cape Town city centre in what was to become known as the Boer Kaap. Converts here heard the word of Islam through the prism of the predominant form of the religion, the Sufi, who performed rituals of the Ratib. This included the piercing of the body with knives while in a trance-like state, and that became a metaphor for rebirth from slavery. This is not the episode to cover that topic in full. I'll get back to it in a future podcast. It's time, though, to reconsider other matters, including the Eastern Cape. On the 5th of December 1836, Stockenstrom had decided to return the whole of the ceded territory to the Amakosa. This was the land fought over in the Sixth Frontier War between the Fish and the Kaiskama rivers. Stockenstrom signed treaties with the Nguika and Tlambi and the Kunukwebe chiefs. Mapasa, who was the son of Bawana of the Amachachu Tembu, also signed. He lived north of the Amatola Mountains. And one of the clauses stipulated that Bawana should respect the sand people living in this mountainous region as the original proprietors of the soil. That has interesting ramifications for the Kosa living there today, considering the first people's claim to this land. The original proprietors, these first people, descendants of the San and the Khoi, regard all others as usurpers, whatever their origin, inside or outside Africa. This is a political hot potato right now, and for the intellectually bereft political class, the first people's opposition to an African nationalist rule has come as a rude shock. Poor old Stockenstrom. He had such good ideas, thought the missionaries, but he was up a creek. In 1837, the new lieutenant governor set up the native police, armed with long sticks and dressed in white jackets and trousers. They were supposed to patrol the Eastern Cape to stop cattle theft. Stockenstrom also laid out the new rules by stating that the farmers should prevent theft by guarding their herds properly. 
The frontier farmers were also told they could no longer cross the rivers to track stolen cattle, but had to negotiate matters first with the appointed Amatkoza councillor. What Stockenstrom did not understand is that there was just not enough labour to hire as herders. The farmers could not keep an eye on their vast herds, and very few wanted this job. When the Amatkoza raided cattle, they often killed the herdsmen. Arming them may have helped, but the settlers were dead set against any black or coloured man being given a firearm. Matters were further exacerbated by the increasing numbers of sheep, which had become the main livestock of the drier frontier region. Herders could make much more money on these farms. Looking after the woolen sheep, it was a safer job than mining the much more valuable cattle. While the Amakosa were allowed back into the ceded territory of the Eastern Cape, that area between the Fish and Kaiskama rivers, they had to deal with the Mfengu people. Remember the refugees who had settled on some of their land? This created conflict between Chief Makoma and Pato of Akunukwebe and the Mfengu. Stockenstrom had hoped that by signing agreements and allowing the Matkosa back, they would stay away from the land across the fish, remaining in the zone up to the Kaiskama. By now, the Amatkoza were already too tightly bound to the colony by trade and labour migration and missionary activity. They were not going to stay out of the Cape. Stockenstrom had returned to the Eastern Cape full of hope and was dismayed to hear about the Fuertrekkers, who were now flooding out of the colony north. He wanted to convince the Trekpoors to become part of a more organised burger army to protect the frontier, and instead his army was now marching away on its own accord. Back in Cape Town, Sir Benjamin de Urban was on his last legs as governor, but before he left Africa he had a special malicious gift for the man he disliked intensely, Stockenstrom. The Urban encouraged contempt for Stockenstrom among the military officers of the Eastern Cape. Then de Urban seized on a report by Abur, who had been with Stockenstrom during the Fourth Frontier War way back in 1812, who said that Stockenstrom had cold-bloodedly shot an unarmed Amatkoza youth while the youngster was hiding under a pile of wood. You can cast your mind back in this series and remember the incidents which are related in episode 66. Here we are many episodes later, and someone has stepped forward to indict Stockenstrom. This was swiftly seized upon by the civil commissioner in Gramstown, Duncan Campbell, who began gathering affidavits from anyone willing to support this charge. The allegation was because Stockenstrom's father had been killed by the Kunukwebe Damakosa, he sought revenge by arbitrary shooting the youngster. Stockenstrom defended himself from the charge of murder by saying he had heard a warning shot and had merely turned and fired simultaneously. The affidavits were collected by his enemies in 1837 and sent to Durban, who sent them to Britain, without informing Stockenstrom or even giving him the opportunity to refute the charges. Luckily for Stockenstrom, Colonial Office Under Secretary James Stephen took exception to what was obviously a dishonourable act and wrote a note to Lord Glenelg saying, I do not see how Sir Benjamin Urban himself is to be exculpated from the charge of having acted towards his great political antagonist, Captain Stockenstrom, in such a manner as neither within the principles of justice, the habits of society, nor the high sense of honour prevailing amongst military men. De Urban, by metaphorically stabbing Stockenstrom in the back, had managed to urinate on his own battery, to use a somewhat modern colloquialism. The case was dropped. Stockenstrom then took Duncan Campbell to court in Cape Town for libel, 
The judges were all locals and awarded damages to Campbell instead, totaling £2,500, which is around £300,000 in today's cash, or 7 million rand. Stockenstrom faced an appalling humiliation in the Eastern Cape. On the night the news reached Grahamstown that he'd lost his libel action, the entire town was lit up in celebration. In Port Elizabeth, residents lit up the town for two nights running. They hated Stockenstrom so much. Bonfires could be seen and were lit from hill to hill, from Utenhag to Graafreinet, all proclaimed with joy that the terrible Stockenstrom, the man who'd given the Amatkosa back their land, had been publicly humiliated. Gramstein Journal editor Robert Godlinton was ecstatic. They had eked out a propaganda victory against the Swede, who was also Dutch, but who worked for the British. The last time he had faced such severe condemnation, Stockenström had fled back home. What would he do now? Would he do the same, they hoped? In October 1837, Stockenström wrote to humanitarian and editor John Fairburn that he felt like honoratus manier, the Dutch official who tried to introduce laws to protect the Khoisan at the end of the 18th century. You'll remember that story. It goes back a while in our episodes. Anyone who tried to speak of human rights would be publicly humiliated by most of the settlers. They had grown very bitter during the Sixth Frontier War. A final word about Stockenstrom. He returned to England to clear his name. His reception by James Stephen was flattering, and he soothed Stockenstrom. And Glenelg said that he should actually return to the Cape. By now, though, Glenelg's own tenure was in trouble, and Melbourne's cabinet fired him for being indecisive. Later, Glenelg's successor, Lord Normanby, thought Stockenstrom would be too controversial to be of further use in any colonial post and the Boer was offered a knighthood and governorship in the West Indies. Stockenstrom turned this down, but accepted a baronetcy and pension of £700 sterling a year. That's about £20,000, or 600,000 rand today. With that, André Stockenstrom returned to the Cape as a private citizen. Thus, one of the major characters in our history begins to fade. And also, simultaneously, this was the effective end of direct active, radical intrusion upon South Africa's racial politics from abroad until the last quarter of the 20th century during apartheid. There's going to be a lot of water under the historical bridge before then. Next episode is back with Pieter Tief and the Voortrekkers and with Tingan and the traders of Port Natal. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. You can head off to the website desmalatham.blog if you want to contact me or through Twitter, stroke X, at deslatham. Till next, goodbye.